All right, I think I'm all set and ready to get started here tonight. As we've been going verse by verse through the book of James, I've really been enjoying doing that. Um, I was listening to someone say recently that any text of the Bible, in order to really get the full context, we can always grab a verse, and, and some of them are so straightforward. You think like one verse in the book of Proverbs, how it's so punchy, and it gives one truth, and you keep moving. But most all of the scripture, you're going to be more in the context if you're backing up and looking at the whole picture. By the time you get to James chapter 4, it's already being built upon by James 1, 2, and 3. And then beyond that, we look at who was James? What was his background? How was he converted? What was his relationship to these people that he's writing to? So while, while we can't do that, obviously, every time we want to preach a text, you can't give the whole book and the whole background. The job in preparing to preach and teach, at least, really should be to get a full picture of what was going on and then kind of was described as like an airplane. You may give the view briefly from 30,000 feet, then you come a little bit lower, a little bit lower, and then you really focus in on whatever passage and text you're, you're in at the moment. But we know that James, we believe, was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to believe in him after the resurrection and that as a Jew, he's writing to the strangers of the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So the, the 12 tribes were the nation of Israel. So he's writing this book to saved Jews who have been scattered abroad because they were being persecuted for their faith. We know that Saul himself, before he became the apostle Paul and wrote half of the New Testament, was in Jerusalem persecuting the church and specifically persecuting Jews who had professed that they now were believers in Jesus Christ. Sometimes they were being dragged from their homes. They would go house to house to find the Christians. They were throwing them in prison. They were taking their possessions from them. So James goes to write this epistle to them. And while he does give a lot of encouragement and he encourages them to have joy and to count it all joy that they have fallen into diverse temptations and to remember, he writes in James chapter one, that the trying of your faith worketh patience and how God will give you wisdom, he also contains some instruction and correction and rebuke to these people. So even in times of trial, we may need to be encouraged, but we're still in our flesh and we may still need to hear truths that are rebuking, rebuking us or correcting us for how we are currently living our lives. In chapter 2, he dove into the subject of partiality and how they were being prejudicial when people came into the church meeting. They were setting their affection and their attention upon the rich people that would come to the gathering while they were dismissive of the poor person who would show up in vile raiment. And he says unto them that you're actually breaking the law of God. We'll see tonight that in James chapter 4 as well, to this Jewish audience, he calls their attention to the law, which would be the Old Testament, for they were well familiar with the Old Testament. And they have come to believe in Christ as Savior because he calls them brethren. So that gives evidence that he's not writing to lost people. The Bible is always being written to the church in the New Testament. But he tells them if you have respect of persons, you actually are breaking the law. For the law said to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Chapter 3, he talks about the tongue in a very short but practical lesson throughout James chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, where he talks about the tongue and how much destruction and damage can be done by us if we do not control our words. So we spoke a couple weeks ago that we should try and dedicate our tongue to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him that the words that come out of our mouth would be used for encouragement, to speak truth, for edification, and not for cursing, for strife, for hatefulness, and for destruction, and tearing one another down. Then last week we talked about the end of James chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. He talks about true wisdom, and how true wisdom from God will allow us to show out of our behavior, our works, with a meekness of wisdom. Then he spoke of false wisdom, and that's what we spoke on last week, how he says that if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, this is not something that you should glory in. Do not lie against the truth. This wisdom, which is actually false wisdom, he says in James 3.15, is not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is... There is confusion and every evil work. Then he goes on to speak about the true wisdom that actually comes from God above. It, how it's pure and it's gentle, it's easy to be entreated, and it's the opposite of false wisdom. And James chapter 4 really continues this conversation about what flows from false wisdom. But what he spoke of as false wisdom in James three fourteen and 15 was if we have bitter envying, and strife in our hearts. And so we spoke of last week how that bitterness and that envying and that strife, envying is wanting what someone else has and that we're not supposed to look at what other people have and be jealous of it and envious of it and think, well, I'm going to get whatever I want by whatever means I want. I'm going to work hard to get ahead and I'm going to do it by my own power. God says that is false wisdom and it leads to destruction. James chapter 4 verse 1 really just continues the whole conversation where he's talking about the bitter envying and strife in your heart, lying against the truth and buying into false wisdom that comes from the devil. And it's always interesting and helpful to remember that when the Bible was written, it was not broken up into chapter and verse. It was one long letter that would be sent to the church to, in order to read. And later on, centuries later, it was divided into chapter and verse for easy reference. Now, I'm very glad that they did that. That makes it a whole lot easier to find our places than to say, well, turn to the Psalms and just continue to look until we get there. Or to the book of James or Matthew, you think of some of the longer ones that would have all been written in book form. So sometimes you got to remember to look to the verse or the chapter that comes before or that follows after in order that the thought may continue. And uh, so sometimes it almost appears like a new subject, but if you look at it, it's actually still running together. And I love Charles Spurgeon commentary on John eleven thirty five, which is the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. And Spurgeon says, I have often felt vexed with the fellow, whoever he was, who chopped up the New Testament into chapters and verses. He seems to have sometimes let the axe fall indiscriminately here and without much thought over here. But then he goes on to say, but here he got it just right for these words 
words deserve to stand alone. There's such a beautiful, powerful truth. Jesus wept, God in the flesh, weeping for the sorrow of mankind. But it's always comical to me to look and say how he, he sometimes felt frustrated with whoever the guy was who chopped it all up for sometimes it should have been allowed maybe to flow a little bit better. But all of that can be remedied simply by studying the Bible in context, looking at what comes before, looking at what comes after. Verse 1 of James 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? Chapter and verse divisions were not part of the original text of the Bible. These breaks were added many centuries later in order to make it easier to refer to specific passages. Therefore, even though this verse begins a new chapter, James is continuing a single train of thought from chapter 3, where he just compared the results of living by the wisdom of heaven versus the results of living by the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom states that human beings are responsible to identify what they want out of life and make a plan to get it at all cost. This has become such a normal perspective that even Christians may see nothing abnormal about it. It even sounds industrious to most of us. The problem with, with this attitude is that it puts the focus of our lives on ourselves. Success, according to the world, is defined by whether we get what we want out of life. Worldliness is driven by envy. I want that. And selfish ambition, I will do whatever it takes to get that. James 3, 15 and 16 noted that this unhealthy wisdom is earthly, sensual, and devilish, leading to confusion and every evil work. Now, he scolds his readers, who though they are Christians, are continuing to live by the world's warped wisdom. Apparently, the community that James was writing to was in conflict. They were having division and arguments one from another. Notice he says in verse number one, where are these wars and fightings coming from among you? So he seems to be addressing a problem that is going on with them in their various communities where they are having conflict, where they are at odds one with another. And this is a problem when even within the church, there's strife and there's arguing all the time and there's a lack of unity. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians that it was so important that the church get along and that it was so damaging when they fought one another that he instructed them not to sue one another in a court of law. He said that if you go to court and sue one another, even though you both are Christians, it gives a bad testimony to the world that you're not able to settle these matters within the church. Therefore, we believe that as members of the church, we should strive when a conflict arises to, to go by what they would call today binding arbitration, to allow other people to speak into that situation and that we don't drag the issues of the church before the public courts. And the Apostle Paul said it would be better for you to suffer loss wrongfully than to engage in this type of behavior in a public court 
because you're going to the world that's lost, that doesn't even know God, and you're saying, I'm a Christian, he's a Christian, but we're fighting with each other so bad that we're suing one another, and we're here to have you sort it out and try to get from him what he owes me and gives it to me. And Paul said that would be a bad testimony. It would be better to allow yourself to be harmed, not physically, but to suffer some form of loss than to go through that process in front of the world. Let the church try to figure it out. The audience here that James is writing to likely would have been tempted to answer the question of what is causing their fights and quarrels by pointing to their opponents. Well, I would have gotten along with everyone. I would obey the command to not have strife and argue. But this guy's really hard to get along with. It's his fault. He stepped on my toes. You think of siblings growing up in the same house and how that conflict resolution and the presence of conflict is a part of everyday life. And, and Sarissa right now without a sibling is, is struggling a little bit with the concept of sharing and taking what's yours and letting someone else use it and not being possessive of it. My dad used to always tell the story that when Jason and I were younger, we were fighting over something. He would always say, I can still hear him telling all of these stories in my sleep. I could remember because he told them <laughs> off and on for 30 years. Uh, Pastor Jay would say, they were fighting over something. I don't know what it was. I'll say it was a, a red fire truck. And they came and they said, Dad, he had it. I had it first, but he took it from me. And the other one said, no, it was supposed to be my turn. And we were supposed to have it. And, 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 and he said, I told Jason and Jack, I said, you're brothers and you're not supposed to fight. He said, so you go back and talk about it and figure out how you're going to handle it or else I'm going to take it away permanently and neither one of you will ever be able to play with it ever again. And he said, then when we came back, see, yeah, we figured out he's going to take it for a while and then I'm going to take that. But that conflict that we would look at as the natural part of childishness is not something that we're supposed to be known for. And so James says, where does your fighting and your wars and your strife and your conflict come from? And they may be tempted to say, well, it would have been okay, but they're being so unreasonable that I'm okay and justified and in the right to argue with them and have conflict. But James is not going to let them get away with that. He says their conflict is not the fault of other people, but rather it is driven by the passions or desires that are battling within them. In other words, it's a byproduct of their sin nature. He says, come they not from hence, from within, even of, even of your lust that war in your members. Now, the word lust in verse number one the definition of the Greek word has to do with sensualness and by implication, our desire. And this passage is a good passage to remind us that when we hear the word lust, a lot of times we think of the sins of the flesh and sensual physical desires. But in this passage, he's not talking anything about that. He's talking about strife and conflict, pride being jealous of what other people have. 
So the word lust, that here means sensual delight, by implication desire, then in verse number 2, he says, ye lust and have not. This is a different Greek word that means to desire or long for, to yearn, a good or a bad desire. So basically, the biblical definition of the word lust is a longing for the forbidden. It's wanting something that I'm not supposed to have. So it can be sins of the flesh, but in this passage, it has nothing to do with that. They're being envious, they're being bitter, and they're fighting one with another. And James says your wars and your fightings, your lack of conflict resolution, comes from your flesh, and that you're desiring to have things that are not yours, and you're giving in to your sinful nature, and trying to obey your own false wisdom, instead of the wisdom of the Word of God. That would instruct you not to be envious, not to have strife, and not to have conflict. Verse 2. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have. Let me back up a little bit. Um, verse, the end of verse number 1, when it says members, it has to do with a limb or a, a something that would be attached to your body, like an arm or a leg. But by implication, he's saying your fightings, your wars that are coming from among the church body, they're coming from the lust that war in your body. In other words, they're coming from your sinful flesh, having desires it shouldn't have, wanting things that God did not give to you, and in your pride, you're allowing that to lead to confrontation and to fighting. In verse 2, he says, ye lust and have not. They're desiring for things and that they do not have. Then he says, ye kill. Now, it's not apparent that someone was literally murdering other people among the Christian community because they couldn't have what they wanted, though maybe it's possible at some point somebody got into some kind of a fight and somebody died, but most likely he's here equating that idea of hatred with the idea of murder, just like Jesus did. When Jesus said, ye have heard, ye shall not kill, but I say unto you that you're not supposed to hate your brother, or if you do hate them, then it's the same in the eyes of God as if you were actually guilty of murder. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. The Apostle Paul said that godliness with contentment is great gain. And it would be a wonderful place to get to in each and every one of our lives if we could be satisfied with what God has given us. Happy when we get more. Work towards a new goal and say, but where I am, I'm not dissatisfied. I'm happy with what God's given me now. If He gives me more, I'll be happy with that. But I'm going to be content. And I'm not going to look at what other people have and be upset at them and be jealous over what they have and wish that I could have it. In so doing, we are being ungrateful and questioning God for our own lot in life that we have had. Pastor Jay used to always say that too. If someone else has something you don't have, be happy for them. Don't be jealous. And I will add, you never really get the full picture just looking from the outside. If you really knew the struggles and the full picture of another person that you may look at and say, boy, they've got it made. I wish I had their life. They may be walking in struggles and burdens that you don't currently have. People sometimes look to Hollywood or to rock stars and think, boy, I just wish that I could have. How many people would desire that kind of fame? 
and won't go into anything in the news about the, the husband and wife former that are suing each other right now in court. But a lot of the times when that, that curtain is peeled away, you see that people are not happy just because they're rich, just because they're famous, just because they live in a sinful lifestyle of pleasure. A lot of burdens can come with that. And the Bible says several times, be not envious of evildoers. Don't be jealous of the wicked. Don't look at them and say, well, they're living a wicked lifestyle and nothing ever happens to them. They just get more famous and they get richer. But I'm trying to follow you, God, and I'm having a hard time. The Bible says, don't think that way. Don't accuse God. Remember that tragically the end of anyone who dies rejecting God is the lake of fire. But even though we pray for those people to repent, to be saved, to be spared that judgment, living a wicked lifestyle brings its own sorrows and its own attachments to it as well. He says, you lust, you have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. And this was leading them to do what? The middle of verse 2? Ye fight and war. Ye fight and war with one another. Then he says this, Yet ye have not, because ye ask not. After all, all the reading that I can do and looking at the, at the statement simply the way it is, here's what James is saying. He's saying you're lusting after things you don't have. You're angry you can't have them. You're fighting and warring with one another with hatred that's equated to murder. He said, yet you have not because you have not asked God for God to fill that need. And if you had simply followed the will of God and been asking God to provide you what you needed, God would have actually answered your prayer. For God does not allow us to suffer lack. It doesn't mean that God will give us whatever we want just because we pray for it. But He does say there are some things they did not have that they would have if they had asked God in prayer. Ye have not because ye ask not. Make sure that our prayer life is faithful. Make sure that you go to God and realize that He told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Remember that He told us it's His good pleasure to answer our prayers and to meet our needs. Just like a dad wouldn't turn to his son and be angry with him because he was asking for something to eat if he was hungry. So too God is not bothered by our prayers. But He wants us to come and pray and He delights to answer our prayer. Let's try to make sure that if we are lacking something we need, that it's not something that God wants us to have, but He's withholding from us because we have failed to pray for it. Jesus said, if you agree, two or three of you agree by faith, then God will answer your prayer. And if you pray by faith, He will answer your prayer. And I believe that is a promise we should try to claim, but it's only one of the conditions of answered prayer. When God gave us several, He said, yes, we are to pray, but He also said we are to pray by faith. And He said we are to pray in the name of Jesus. And He said we are to pray in the will of God, just like Jesus Himself prayed. Father, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me. Nevertheless, He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but Thine be done. And verse 3 continues also that sometimes our prayers are not answered because we are not asking in the will of God as the Bible instructs us to do. Ye ask and receive not. So sometimes you don't have because you haven't asked. And sometimes you have went and prayed for it, but you still don't have it. Why? 
because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Strong's in the Greek said under the word amiss, it said badly. Sometimes it has to do with evil or with sin or missing the mark. But here he's basically saying you're asking badly. You're asking amiss. You're asking sinfully. In other words, if we know the heart of God, we will begin to pray for things that are spiritual. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, but perhaps one of the most misquoted ones, is David, I believe, writes in the Psalms, "...delight yourself also in the Lord." And He will give you the desires of your heart. And people will use that verse and say, well, well, I love you, Lord, so give me the desires of my heart. And the desires of my heart is a million dollars cash and a brand new Corvette and to be famous and to have fun. But the verse is structured, not where it says God will give you whatever your heart is. But He first says, delight yourself also in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, as we delight ourselves in God, we begin to desire in our heart what God desires for us. So we go to Him not with our own ideas in prayer, but rather asking Him for what He already wants to give us so that the answer to our prayer comes with Him giving us what He wants us to have, what is spiritual and what is good for us. So we need to align with the Lord, delight ourselves in Him, and then our prayer life will stem from the fact that we love God, we love His Word, we delight in God, and we delight in His Word. So he says you're asking for things and not getting them because you're asking amiss. You're asking things that are way far out in left field from the desires that your parents would want to give you. You love your child. And if they come to you with a request for their birthday, you might want to try to fulfill it. But if they come and say, can I get a shark and keep it in the pool in the backyard? That's what I want for my birthday. There's no chance of granting that request because they're asking something that's so far off of the mark of what is reasonable and practical and healthy and good and aligning with your desires for your children. So God says you're praying and you're asking something that does not align with my will. Maybe it was asking to be wealthy. Maybe it was asking for the things that they were envious over. Maybe it was asking for the destruction of that person that they were arguing with and saying, God, would you please take them out of the way? I know there's a few imprecatory psalms in the Bible where David prayed for evil men who had rejected God and would be akin to the worst kind of murderers or people who would harm children. And David said, take them out of the way. Stop them from doing evil. But there was another time when there were people who were, what were they doing? Casting out devils. And the disciples said to Jesus, should we call out fire from heaven and destroy them because they're not in our group? And Jesus said, they're not against me, they're for me. Why are you looking and saying, should we take someone else who's serving God, but not doing it with us in the same way we do it? Should we ask for them to be destroyed? Jesus rebuked them for that. And your brother or sister in Christ or even someone at work who you are having conflict with and your own pride and your own flesh is playing a part in it is not your enemy to pray for God to destroy them. Rather pray for God to destroy your flesh and your sinful desires. Whatever it was, he says ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. 
We cannot ask God for things that our flesh wants, whether it's sin or whether it's to be rich or whatever it is that we're talking about tonight. If it's a fleshly sinful desire and we say, God, would you please give me that, that I may consume it, that I may have it and enjoy it because my flesh desires it. He said, God's not going to answer that prayer. You're asking amiss. You're asking apart from what the will of the Father is. So seek the heart of God. Walk with God and ask Him to change your desires so that your prayers will flow out of your relationship with God, not you directing at God requests that are things you're lusting after that you may consume it through your flesh. James identified their root problem. They didn't even ask God for what they wanted. They believed in God, but they didn't trust Him to provide for them. And then, when they did pray, sometimes they were asking apart from the will of God, and God was not answering their prayers. Let's see, verse 4. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Let's continue. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Here he speaks of adultery, not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. The Bible is filled with examples, Old Testament and New, where God would describe the nation of Israel going after false gods as though they were committing spiritual adultery. God even says once in the Old Testament he had divorced and put away the nation of Israel, but he was justified in doing it, for they had committed spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. And look at the context and the flow of what James is saying. He's talking about them fighting and lusting after things that are not theirs and warring and being off in their prayer life. And he calls them spiritual adulterers because they're trying to be a friend of the world. They're loving the things of this present world more than they love God. And he essentially says, you're cheating on God with the world by giving in to these sinful desires and loving this present world to where even your prayer life, are, you're just asking God for things you can consume upon your fleshly desires. We've talked about this several times recently, but when he says the world, he's referring to the people who have rejected God and to a system of beliefs that are opposite to what the Word of God teaches. John 17, 1 John 2, and now James chapter 4, when he warns against being a friend of the world. As I've said last time, he's not talking about, well, it's popular with the world to wear Nike tennis shoes, so we shouldn't wear Nike tennis shoes because that's worldly. Or to cut your hair and part it down the middle is what's popular, so let's not do that because that's worldly. We have to look different than the world. No, he's talking about a system of beliefs that says you can pray here, but you can't pray in the name of Jesus because Jesus is offensive. He's talking about the wisdom of the world that would say all religions are equal and that Christ is not the only way. And in any other example we could think of where the prevailing wisdom of the world would be in opposition to what the Word of God teaches. He says, so don't try to be a friend of the world. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. The word there for enmity means hostility and opposition. 
It's a strong opposition and fighting. The Bible says the world is at enmity with God. No better example of that than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That God was here in the flesh. But in the political and religious system of the day, there was conflict with Jesus Christ. And they crucified Him and put Him to death. Verse 5. First, let me note verse 4. We should not withdraw from the world completely. I believe that we should have friends, that we should engage with the culture so that we may influence them for Jesus Christ. But we are to reject worldly wisdom. Verse 5. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? I'm trying to leave out some of the commentary I have printed here for time's sake tonight, but I'll just note this, that there seems to be some disagreement over the exact meaning of this verse and the way that it is worded and the way that it was translated. Well, it seems to be the most popular view that people are saying, think that it's talking about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God that dwells in us strongly desires us not to envy. That seems to be what the majority view is talking about. The word spirit, it, that, that Greek word for spirit, appears hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. Sometimes it talks about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it talks about the spirit of a man, such as he was troubled in his spirit. So it can, and sometimes it refers to spirits, which would be devils or fallen angels. When I look at it, and when I, I read uh, Barnes' notes, a commentary from the 1800s, it really seems to me to fit the flow of the passage. When you look at verse 3, that he's talking about you're asking God for things outside of His will that He doesn't want you to have, so you can consume it on your lust. He's talked about envying in... What verse said the word envy? Is it just chapter 3? Right up there in chapter 3, he talked about envying. And then he says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So to me, even the wording itself and the flow would seem to fit that he's saying the spirit that naturally dwells within us as human beings strongly desires to be envious. That comes to us naturally. But I'll just throw that out there. The Bible would support either teaching God Himself is a jealous God. So if, if, if it is trying to convey the fact that the Holy Spirit's within us and He strongly desires us not to be envious and to rather He wants us to be spiritual, that would be backed up by the rest of the teaching of Scripture. But I tend to think it's just talking about the Spirit that dwells within us. It naturally pulls us to lust, to be envious, and to want to sin. Now, the other thing that is a little bit confusing about verse number 5 is that there is no direct quote of other place in Scripture that would say, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Almost every time in the New Testament... Let me uh, slow down here and take a breath. Almost every time in the New Testament when it says the Scripture saith, it is written, it's referring to an Old Testament Scripture. But we can't find one that exactly matches verse number 5, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So it would seem that the most reasonable explanation is that the Scripture all over the place teaches the concept of our, our natural man is pulled away to sin 
even though the verse isn't specifically said. And I, I feel like I'm losing my place because I thought I had one more cross-reference here to give you. And I, I think I'm, I'm losing it, so let me just move on and maybe God will bring me back to it. Verse number 6, James quotes Proverbs 3 and 34. Uh, Rebecca, would you read James uh, 4, 6 out loud for us? But he giveth more grace. Thank you. Uh, and I found what, what I was wanting to read was that there are several verses that could match James chapter 4 and verse number 5, such as Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. neighbor. Proverbs 14.30 says, Wrath killeth and envy slayeth. The silly one. Envy is the rottenness of the bones, Proverbs says. Who is able to stand before envy? So all of these verses come really close to saying what's in verse 5 and contains the concept. In verse 6, he does directly quote Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. That verse says if you're a scorner, if you're proud, God will scorn you. He will resist you. But if you're lowly, if you're humble, God will give you grace. Pride was the original sin of the devil when he fell from heaven. And being proud and in our flesh will lead to God resisting us. But if we will humble ourselves before him, he will give grace, but he giveth more grace. Where sin abounded, there the more did grace abound. Verse 7. I think I left out my outline. Number one was the source of conflict. The Bible tells us the source of conflict is our own fleshly desires and sinful nature. It's false wisdom, it's friendship of the world, and it's pride. Now in verses 6 through 10, James gives us the solution for conflict. The solution. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we want victory over temptation, whatever that temptation is, victory over our fleshly desires and false wisdom, the Bible says we need simply to repent, to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Bible doesn't say, quote, one verse, and the devil will leave you alone. The Bible says to resist, to fight against. The word here for resist means to stand against and to withstand. When you think of resisting arrest and someone who gets arrested for that, and you might see on cops or some other video online or a sovereign citizen that won't get out of his car, when they resist arrest or sometimes it's someone who's been doing drugs, they fight, they claw, they punch, they run, they do everything they can to get away. And the Bible says if we want the devil to flee, we're going to have to withstand, as you would withstand an oncoming attack. We're going to have to fight. We're going to have to push back. And we're going to have to resist. And in the process of repenting and giving up our fleshly desires and submitting ourselves to God, we will find ourselves resisting the devil. And the Bible says he will flee from us. Verses 8 through 10 continue this thought line of repentance. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh 
to you. If you want God to be near you in your life, you want to feel His presence, then seek Him. Go to where He is. God does not move. God is always holy. God is always faithful. And when we drift from Him, He's not going to follow us into sin, but He does call us back and pursue us to call us back to righteousness. And if we want to move towards God, He will come nigh to us where we are. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Verse 9 is not a very popular verse either to preach to lost people or to the church at large today. People want to go to church to feel good and to be entertained. But here he writes to them that they need to repent. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Stop laughing and mourn. Stop your joy and let it be turned to heaviness. Why? They had sin they needed to repent of. And they needed to stop and consider and take hold of the fact that their sin has grieved the Holy Spirit of God and that their sin had caused Jesus Christ to be sacrificed and crucified and to die. And they needed to grab on to the gravity of their sin and come to God with a weeping, repentant heart. Not that James is calling us to live an entire lifestyle as some monks would do where they, they would literally beat themselves on the back with a whip and they would try to fast all of the time and withdraw from society and punish themselves. Even the tradition of Lent, which is carried out by the Catholic Church, you take 40 days and you forsake something and give it up. And I'm not saying it would be wrong to do that necessarily, but the idea of I'm going to sacrifice and do something that I may be more spiritual, that specific practice is not really taught in the Bible. For Jesus died to set us free. Jesus suffered. So we don't have to. And in James 1-2, he tells them, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Don't let your joy be taken from you just because you're going through trials. So we're not called to live a life of sorrow where we're always down on ourselves and we think we're never good enough and we're afflicting ourselves and we're weeping. No, our joy is found in Christ. But when we examine ourselves and we find that we're living in sin, that we're contrary to the Word of God, that we've grieved the Spirit of God by our conflict and our fighting and our backbiting and whatever else may be going on in our life that doesn't agree with the Word of God, it wouldn't be such a bad thing to stop laughing and start mourning and let our joy be turned to heaviness while we seek God. I think it was Rick Warren I saw on Fox News one time was doing an interview with someone and, and they said, what is the Christmas season all about? And he said, well, boy, America just needs a party right now. There's a lot of things that's going on that make us sad and we just need a good party. So Christmas is about giving us a good party. I was young, but I remember not really liking that answer or approach even when I was a lot younger. And a lot of the times the problem with America right now is not that we need a party, but like the church in Revelation 3.19, God said to them, because you're rich, because you're full, because you don't think you actually need anything, your eyes are blinded and you don't even know that you're miserable, poor, blind, wretched, and naked in the eyes of God. And in America and in the church, 
sometimes it wouldn't be such a bad thing. If rather than simply looking to be entertained or be perked up, if we would stop and mourn and weep for the fact that we need to repent and seek God. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. You see the picture and the flow. You're proud, God resists you. You're humble, God gives you grace. You try to lift yourself up, God pushes you down. You humble yourself in his eyes and he will lift you up. Verse 11, speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that thou judgest another? And the third point tonight is that God says to stop judging. God commands us to stop judging. Here he says part of what is leading to your conflict, you're speaking evil one of another. You're gossiping and you're slandering. And he actually quotes here quite possibly a section in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out of time and I can't read my own notes, but it's Proverbs 3, 16, Leviticus 19, 16 through 18. He tells them, don't hate your brother in your heart, don't seek vengeance, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. But he precedes that verse by saying, thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among the people. He says, don't be guilty of gossip and of slander. Don't be speaking evil of one another, brethren. If you're speaking evil of your brother, you're judging him. And you're doing what? You're violating the law. That law that they were so familiar with, you're speaking evil of the law, for you're breaking it. When God said, don't be a slanderer, and then He says, you're becoming a judge. If you become a judge, you break the law. And if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. What did he write to them earlier? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And here he says, God has given you the law, not so you can sit back and be the arbiter of who's right and who's wrong and who's breaking the law. He said he gave you the law to do the law, not to sit back and judge it. There's one lawgiver and one judge, and that is God. Therefore, who art thou that thou judgest another? That would help solve a lot of sources of conflict if we would leave the judgment of our peers to God and just worry about ourselves. Matthew 7, 1 through 3, Jesus warned against judging. May we heed these verses and use it as a call to each and every one of us that we may avoid sinful conflict and strife by humbling ourselves, submitting to God, and worrying about our own selves, not judging one another, and not engaging in gossip and in slander and anything else that would cause conflict among God's people. For God hates the sowing of discord among the brethren. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you that we could be here for the Bible study tonight. I pray that you would answer all of the prayer requests that were given earlier. Lord, we want to remember each and every one. We pray for Ashton and her family and all of her needs that she currently has. We pray for Olivia and her boss that has now retired that's dealing with the death of a child. Lord, we pray that you please would be with him in this unspeakable grief. We pray for Jana as she is preparing to graduate. What a wonderful thing that I know her parents must be so proud of her and we all are. We pray that you'd help her as she makes it here to the finish line and help her in her career that you would bless her with. We pray for... Uh, uh, Sister Pam, as she is seeking your will for possibly transitioning to a new job, 
Lord, we pray for Ronnie and Lisa and their travel that's coming up this weekend. And Lord, we pray for Brother Rabin and the repair of his car that he'd be able to get it sorted out soon as he asked us to pray for that tonight. And as we take the gift to the teachers next week at the school, we pray that you would use it for us to be a blessing to them, for the gospel to be spread, and for us to build relationships in the community so that we might have opportunity to influence them and call them to salvation in Jesus Christ. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good night.